You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, scientifically proven buzzkills. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Marissa McCool. Find her on Patreon at patreon.com slash QAF. I'm Lauren Bailey, and with me tonight I have Ashlyn Noble. Hello. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And Jem Newman. Hello. In true L-U-E-E fashion, on this month's show, we've each taken a perfectly good mystery and ruined it with easily accessible scientific explanations. I'm going to kick us off with the mystery that inspired this topic, Dyatlov Pass Incident. Sixty-four years ago from the week that we're recording this, something very weird happened in the Ural Mountains. Probably several somethings weird? but we're going to focus on the one that got the big media coverage. Well, big for the Soviet Union in the 50s. Igor Dyatlov led a group of 10 young yet experienced hikers slash skiers on an expedition across the northern Ural Mountains. All of the members were students and members of the hiking club at the Ural Polytechnical Institute, and they were all rated as grade 2 hikers. And they would be using this trip as their basis for getting their grade 3, which was the highest available to them at the time. They needed to do a grade three level hike in order to get their grade three certification. So what I'm saying here is that these 10 folks, although they were very young, they were tried and level-headed hikers. None of them were known to drink, and any smokers in the group gave it up before going on the expedition. This was a huge goal for them, and they set off immediately upon receiving their government permissions on January 23, 1959. So I have been a fan of podcasts and things of this sort of genre for a long time, as I will talk about in my segment. But I had never heard that there was like a grading system for hiking that was involved here. And now I want to know about the grading system for hiking so that I can achieve it. <laughs> Luckily, I knew that's how you were going to end it. <laughs> I need like the Girl Scout badge for adults that this implies. <laughs> well, Luckily, even though I don't mention it a lot in my segment, I do have in the show notes the current listing for the world (laughs) hiking certifications, so have at it. (laughs) It says class six. That means only the most experienced climbers. How tough could it be? It's this far! The eight men and two women set out by train, and then they caught a ride with a truck to Vizhai, which was the last settlement near the start of their hike. On January 27, when the group was preparing to start skiing, one of the hikers, Yuri Yudin, had to stop because of his health, and he returned with the local guide who had been taking them north. And Yuri did not know how lucky he was. He made it home on February 2. The rest of the group is expected home by February 12, though they had sent word of an approximate three-day delay with Yudin, who then forgot to tell anyone. Oh no! <laughs> That's not cool. Yeah, that's, well, that's he like didn't... number one hiking out in the wilderness, mm-hmm. right? Tell people mm-hmm. where you are and if there's going to be changes to your itinerary. Yeah, and when you're he didn't get go back. back, yeah, they didn't 
they thought he was going to go back to the university right away, but he just went to his hometown instead. Yeah, he was 19 years old. I, And he was in a lot of pain. <laughs> it's not an excuse, but... On February 1, the hikers, they were very tired with the extremely deep snow, and they spent the first part of the day constructing a temporary storage shelter for their return hike supplies, because there's no need to cart extra cans and spare skis up a snowy mountain. The group then skied all afternoon and arrived at what would be known as the Dyatlov Pass at around 1,500 hours. It's never good when it's named after your group. The sun set at about 1,700 hours. They had set the tent on the eastern slope of the mountain at an altitude of 1,079 meters. The group had kept hike diaries, and they took several rolls of film, because they would need them as evidence to receive this grade 3 hiking certificate that they were going for. The recovered pictures, because they recovered a lot of the pictures, show average goofy folks in their late teens and early 20s doing an activity that they loved and they were good at. The final picture, though, which was taken February 1, it's extremely eerie. The snow and wind were worsening, and the shot shows the line of people skiing, taken by the last person in line, and the skiers ahead get fainter and fainter by each person until they disappear into the blowing snow. Hmm. On, Feb- yeah. on February 15, the group was expected to be back in contact both with the university and with their families. But, as we said before, since Yuri Yudin didn't contact anybody about the expected delay, as I said, he had gone directly home and not to the university, the families of the hikers were already getting worried, because they were supposed to, as far as they knew, check in on February 12. Dyatlov's sister contacted the university on February 16, and then on February 17, the university sent a telegram to Vizhay, which is the last city that the group left. They heard back on the 19th that the group had not yet arrived back from up the mountain, and so the university started to assemble a mountain search and rescue team. Search team set off the next morning, which was the same day that Yudin returned to the university and found out that his friends were still missing on the mountain. I don't know why, but this is the part of the story that really gets me. He's returning, he's excited to see his friends and hear all about the rest of the trip, and... Nothing. It's just Hmm. a very human moment. But I Mm -hmm. guess no harm done not telling anybody, because it would have been worse if it was the other way around, where they said, oh, we're planning to come back earlier, and and he didn't tell anybody. Yeah. And this was 1959, so, I mean, there was no other way to really get any information down the mountain, right? So Yudin returns, and meanwhile, the search has started for the nine missing hikers, including the search team included members of the Euro Polytechnical Sports Club, who flew up by plane and helicopter, but then they had to halt the search because the weather was too bad up on the mountain. Mm. And the regional prosecutor's office also opened a criminal investigation into what happened to the hikers, and he also joined the search. The search continued from February 20th through 26th, when the searchers then found Dyatlov Party's tent on the eastern slope of the Hachital Mountain. And I apologize if I have butchered the name of that mountain. So this campsite, this tent, baffled the search party. The student who found the tent, who was named Mikhail Sheravin, said, and I quote, The tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty, and all of the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. There were nine set of footprints, left by people wearing only socks or a single shoe, and even barefoot. And these footprints, they followed them, leading down to the edge of the nearby woods, on the opposite side of the pass. So it was 1.5 kilometers to the northeast. After 500 meters, these tracks were covered in with snow. 
Right at the edge of the forest, under a big Siberian pine tree, the searchers found the remains of a small fire. Beside the, the small fire, there were the first two bodies. There was Yuri Kuroshenko and Yuri Doroshenko. Three of the men on this expedition were named Yuri. And both of them were shoeless, and they were dressed only in their underwear. The branches on the tree above them were broken up to about five meters high, so that suggested that one of the skiers had climbed up to look for something, perhaps trying to find where the camp was, after they had fled. Between the pine and the camp, so digging backwards, the searchers then found three more corpses. Igor Dyatlov, Zenaida Kolomagrovia, and Rustam Slobodin, who, and they all died in poses, suggested that they were attempting to return to the tent. They were trying to head back up the slope. In March of 1959, forensics examinations showed that the hikers had died of hypothermia. In April, the tent had had examinations done, and it was determined that it had been cut from the inside and not the outside. So the prevailing theory had been at that point that somebody had attacked them and they had run out of the tent after somebody had ripped it, but it was shown that they ripped the tent themselves with a knife. So they weren't attacked by a wild animal or a yeti or somebody attacking them. It was another two months before they found the four remaining hikers. They were found on May 4, under four meters of snow, in a ravine 75 meters further into the woods from the pine tree. So three of these four were better dressed than the others, and there were signs that some of the clothing they were wearing had been taken from the people who had died by the, by the fire or by the pine tree. One of the hikers was wearing somebody else's torn trousers, and her left foot and shin were wrapped in somebody else's torn jacket. So it looked like they had all run down and made this fire, and then some had tried to hike back up, and some had tried to hike back down after the others had died. That's creepy. In May of 1959, radiological tests came back to say that the clothing from the bodies found deeper in the ravine, the ones had fallen off, they had higher than normal levels of radiation than other people. We don't know why, but that was the basis for theories like, was it aliens? Was it a nuclear attack? All those sorts of things. Well, if they were found in a ravine, though, presumably mm-hmm. the, the background radiation would be a little bit different in that region than in other regions. I mean, like, depending on the geological structure underlying the region, you're going to have different levels of background radiation. I know Winnipeg, for example, has many multiples of the normal background radiation compared to other parts of Canada. Really? I mean, that's not surprising, but... (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, living in Winnipeg is... Living anywhere on the surface will be the equivalent of, like, having... Or getting an x-ray taken, like a chest x-ray, is the equivalent of so many days or weeks or months of background radiation in a certain location, and Winnipeg is much higher than others. That's cool. It's more I mean, bad than cool, I would say, but yeah. Yeah, I mean... Not good for the DNA. Cool. Yeah. I worry about how much time we spend in our basement, because I'm sure it's never had any sort of, like, radon remediation or anything. Mm. And I would recommend, especially for people living in Manitoba, you can send away for a kit. It costs, like, 50 bucks, and you basically stick it in your basement for, I think it's, like, three months, and then you mail it back, and they'll give you a report. Mm, yeah, my parents, I don't know. parents had that done. And I, I did that a couple you, years ago and we, we were okay. So really? <laughs> it automatically though, if you fail the test, it's you have to start the remediation process. My yeah. Just but I mean for the year. sake of like I don't want you, you folks to die of lung cancer either, so mm. Mm. 
No, it's better to know. Anyway, back to Russia. <laughs> the why, what happened, remained a mystery for around 50 years. As I said before, was it a Yeti? Was it an avalanche? Was it group madness? Why had these hikers cut up a perfectly good tent and run out in their sleeping clothes to die from hypothermia or to fall off a ravine in the dark? A few months ago, I read the 2013 book Dead Mountain by Donnie Icar. He's an American documentarian. He retraced the route of the Dyatlov expedition, and then he spoke to a bunch of scientists. This research team came to the conclusion that it was most likely infrasound, namely a Carmen Vortex street that drove the hikers out of their tent and into the cold. According to the theory, the infrasound generated by the wind as it passed over the top of the Halacho Mountain was responsible for causing physical discomfort and mental distress in the hikers. Because of their panic, the hikers were driven to leave the tent by whatever means necessary, and they fled down the slope. By the time they were further down the hill, they would have been out of the infrasound's path, and they would have regained their composure, stopped panicking, but in the darkness, they would, would have been unable to return to their shelter. And there was traumatic injuries suffered by three of the victims, where they stumbled over the edge of the ravine in the darkness and landing on the rocks at the bottom. If we look at fluid dynamics, a Carmen Vortex Street is a repeating pattern of swirling vortices caused by a process known as vortex shedding, which is responsible for the unsteady separation of flow of a fluid around blunt bodies. So it's a disruption of the air around this solitary mountain. If you've like ever you have heard... a rock in a stream. Yeah, okay. exactly. And if you've ever heard power lines singing in a windstorm, have you had anybody ever heard that? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is the sound of a vortex street. Hmm. Okay. Vortex street? Vortex stream? Street. Street. As oh. in Portage, well, Portage Avenue, but Main Street. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. So to continue with the vortex street, the flow of atmospheric air over obstacles, like, like these mountains, creates these vortex street. When a cloud layer is present at a correct altitude, so it's got to be right bang on, you can see these streets in the, in the cloud cover. Yeah, they can be up to like 400 kilometers away from the obstacle, but then sort of like move closer towards it. And they're usually about 20 to 40 kilometers across these anomalies. If you look at cloud patterns or tests with fluid dynamics, a vortex street looks like a curving and shifting spiral of air trapped inside a normal wind pattern. So like there's these circles and literally it's a, it's a vortex. I'm making like a circle with my hands as if you could see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's like folks so- watching the live feed at home. Yeah. Look for that. Yeah. I was going to set up my camera and I forgot. So it looks like, like a series of, of little tornadoes working together in a spiral. With the reg- hmm. with the normal airflow pushing over top of them and below them. That's cool. Yeah. It took me a long time to figure out how to explain that. Because <laughs> fluid dynamics, surprisingly, not my cup of tea. <laughs> Knowing what we do about infrasound, I'm really inclined to believe this theory. Infrasound has been proven to cause panic attacks in humans. We've talked about it on the show before. It's the cause of that eerie feeling that people attribute to ghosts. It's a low-frequency sound. It describes sound waves with a frequency below the lower limit of human audibility, so it's about 20 hertz or below. And since our hearing becomes gradually less sensitive as frequency decreases, 
So for us to perceive infrasound, the sound pressure has to be really high, so like a vortex street. So this, you've got a really low down sound and huge sound pressure, so it's just building up in you. And mm-hmm. instead of the ear hearing it, because you, it's below our level of hearing, at higher intensities, you can feel it in various parts of your body, like in your gut or your chest. Like it'll mm. cause anxiety, it'll give you like panic attacks, or it'll give you what I call terror tummy, which is probably TMI, mm. but when you're so scared you have to poop. Yeah. Yeah. So infrasound will do that. So that is one of the scientific theories for the Dyatlov Pass incident. The mountain used its deep and scary voice to get out, well, to tell them to get out, and they did in the most tragic way possible. Another, and the official theory, is a slab avalanche. In July 2020, the deputy head of the Urals Federal District Directorate of the Prosecutor General's Office announced that an avalanche had to be the official cause of death for the Atlov group. Later, independent computer simulations by Swiss researchers also suggested an avalanche. A report in The New Yorker stated, quote, The most appealing aspect of Kirikov's scenario is that the Dyatlov's party's actions no longer seemed irrational. The snow slab avalanche, according to Green, would probably have made loud cracks and rumbles as it fell across the tent, making an avalanche seem imminent. Kirikov noted that although the skiers made an error in the placement of their tent, everything they did subsequently was textbook. They conducted an emergency evacuation to ground that would be safe from an avalanche. They took shelter in the woods, they started a fire, they dug a snow cave. Had they been less experienced, they would have remained near the tent, dug it out, and survived. But avalanches are by far the biggest risks to mountains in the winter, and the more experience you have, the more you fear them. The skiers' expertise doomed them. There are also... Yeah, that's a hard line. That's, that's rough. There's evidence against an avalanche as well, including tent placement models, where if an, ada- if an avalanche had come down it would have been nowhere near where their tent was. They wouldn't have felt that kind of, oh shit, we have to get out. Over 100 subsequent expeditions to this area had not seen any sort of avalanche activity, especially in February when the weather wasn't conducive to avalanches. They are more prevalent in the spring melt in April and May. And Dyatlov and his team were experienced hikers and skiers, and they knew the similar terrain, and they would not have camped in the path of a potential avalanche. Like, they, they didn't set up their tent in any sort of panic, like the, oh, oh no, where the night's coming on. It was calm and measured, according to their diaries that they found. So, in the six decades since the incidents, the infrasound and the avalanche are the two most accepted theories. Yeti, Soviet military testing, and attacks by local indigenous groups have also been floated, but obviously never been proven. As I said, I prefer the Carmen Vortex Street because it makes the most sense to me, having seen other evidence of what infrasound can do. But I might be biased because I read the book first rather than (laughs) hearing the official Russian scientific explanation for avalanches that they've never seen in the area. So I disagree with the official, but it was definitely... Something scientifically proven, and not a Yeti. (laughs) Interesting. Yeti! I am the Yeti! I always wondered... (laughs) I always wondered if it had just been one of them got up in the middle of the night to, like, 
go have a pee or something and then got lost and was calling and there was kind of like just a trail of ducks led out to try to rescue each other and they got lost in the snow. And, but, I mean, that was floated as well, but why would they not put their boots on and why would they get yeah. a hole in the side of the tent? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, why wouldn't they use the door for something that they had to use the same tent for the next, like, five or six nights as well? Yeah. Yeah. Lauren, I think it's fair to not just automatically trust the official Soviet government line on unexplained things. <laughs> because. Yeah. I think it's fair to look for corroboration. Yeah. Huh. Next, Laura's going to be saying that the hold of my R was real. I don't know what that is. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I. I. Yeah. Okay. I wasn't familiar with that <laughs> pronunciation. Yeah, I, it was not the correct pronunciation, that's why. <laughs> I was like, I thought you said like a weird way of saying gold in my ear. And no, I'm like, what, what is happening right now? She was real. <laughs> she was real. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Very confused and not understanding where this was going. Okay. Huh. I get it. It was a good joke. I'm sorry, I didn't understand what you said. <laughs> <laughs> it's late. <laughs> Story of my life. <laughs> yeah. How so Gem and I have been to Rome. Have either of you been to Rome? I have never left this continent. Okay. If you get the chance, it's a fantastic city. We thoroughly enjoyed it there. There's so much to do. And as anyone who has heard much about Rome will know, is there is a lot of ancient stuff there, like buildings and stuff. And one of the most talked about is the Pantheon. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it is truly incredible when you go to see it. And it's quite interesting because you just come around the corner and you're like, boom, there it is. <laughs> you don't expect it to be there. And then boom, there's this giant thing just with like apartments and other buildings around it. I seem to recall at one point we were lost looking for something and we kept running into the Pantheon and we couldn't. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> we couldn't find what we were actually looking for. Because it was nearby, but there's lots of really narrow streets that definitely do not run on a grid. So <laughs> anyway, it is an impressive building. It is more than 2000 years old. And it is made of concrete. And again, if there's a lot of facts about the Pantheon, it is the world's largest unsupported concrete dome. It is still the world's largest unsupported concrete dome. And that's pretty incredible. I mean, that's pretty incredible compared to today's standards. And then you think that this was built in Roman times, which is truly quite astounding. And... It's especially astounding to me to think of the history of concrete in general. But let's go back a little bit. So how on earth did the Romans build these things? And how are they still standing here today? And that's something that scientists have been puzzling over for a long time. Over the last, I believe, many decades, but especially in the last decade or so, they've been gathering more clues to understand the secret to their concrete. But really in 2023 is when they really feel like they've discovered sort of that missing piece of the puzzle. They had understood a lot of important differences or aspects of the concrete. But 
they think they found what makes it so strong. Now, we live in Winnipeg, and I don't have official numbers, but how long would you say concrete on our roads lasts in years? Oh, on the point roads? Three. <laughs> <laughs> right? I think that's generous. <laughs> now, now, like, in, in total fairness, concrete's roads with our winters and snowplow equipment and all of that is a different story than concrete in buildings. But even still, concrete in buildings doesn't last all that long. Nope. The oldest buildings nope. we have, here in this city at least, are still built with stone and, and bricks and that. Same thing in, in most old cities in, in North America here. We don't have concrete old, things old, old. that... The, well, I mean, when you go to the East Coast, you do get like 400-year-old, 500-year-old cities. Like, that is getting to be quite old. But yes, it's not Roman old. Yeah, but yeah, it's North American old. Yes, exactly. Not European old. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, it, it is, yes, contextually old. And when you talk about the prairies and, and that type of building, we're talking 200 years is really old, right? Mm -hmm. But I digress. So we don't see concrete lasting that, that long. And yet... The Colosseum is made of concrete. The, Parth the Pantheon, rather, is made of concrete. Seawalls on the, the Italian coast were built thousands of years ago, and they're made of concrete, and they still stand, and that's... Really? Yes. Yes. Now, do they look wow. the nicest? No, ne not necessarily, no, they're but pitted. they're still there. And this is really important because seawalls around the world are frequently built with concrete and they erode very quickly because seawater is notoriously harsh on concrete. Mm -hmm. So how did they do it? Magic. magic. <laughs> Roman magic. So first, before we, we understand concrete, we have to understand cement a little bit, which is something that I thought was interchangeable words for many years of my life. I now know they are not the same. So use cement to create concrete. Concrete is the thing. Cement is the reactive part. And then concrete is once you add in the hard bits that give it structure, like small stones or sand or something like that. But the part that makes it hard and durable, that's concrete. And it's generally made of a mixture of different chemicals that when, when mixed together with some water, they react and they form really hard structures. And they generally release some heat and sometimes some carbon dioxide and so on and so forth. So Roman concrete is similar to the concrete that we think of today in that it includes... I remember learning so, how much sand concrete requires. It's like one of the reasons why sand gets mined out of places to go other yep. places because it's required for concrete. And specific types of sand are preferred yeah. and or required. So it's silicates. So silica sand mm -hmm. is very important, which actually there's a big controversial mining project that is trying to get approved here in Manitoba, just not too far from my parents' place, because there are apparently deep silica deposits there. So the cement requires silicates. So that's those sand or things made of silica. And it, it includes ash. And so Rome, Italy has volcanoes. So they had lots of ash around. And it, it, the type of ash is called pozzolan ash, but other types of ash or, or ash is similar from volcano to volcano. So it uses volcanic ash. And then 
it uses some calcium, which is often known as lime, or you would get it from limestone, which again is very abundant here in Manitoba. So these are not unusual things. When we mix these all together, they would create a decent cement, but it doesn't it surprised scientists that it would be so hard and so durable. And how did it not lose its structure over time? So what they learned is that it's actually in the calcium and the types of calcium that were used in the cement-making process that makes the Roman cement so incredible. So when we, when we think of making cement, usually it's lime or calcium hydroxide that is used with that. And it's mixed into a slurry and it's mixed into the cement and it's somewhat reactive. It's part of what creates the, the exothermic process. And, and gets the hardening going and gets some of the strength going. <laughs> hard. Then scientists realized when they were analyzing the Roman concrete that there were, at first glance, what appeared to be impurities, little white calcium-type deposits throughout the, throughout the concrete. And Laura, as, were they teeth? Yes, were they, teeth? <laughs> they were not. <laughs> oh my god, that's so dark, Lauren. That would Lauren. be truly horrifying, but also very <laughs> Roman. Can you, so if you yeah. died as a gladiator, did your teeth become part of the stadium? Huxley has been wondering what the Tooth Fairy does with all of her teeth. <laughs> yeah. That's an important question on the road to becoming people like us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, they were not teeth. These were tiny, tiny things. Really specks, or sometimes even microscopic little calcium deposits. And so as as modern researchers like to do, they like to say, well, that must be just impurities. Those ancient people knew nothing and blew it off. But then some researchers looked at it a little bit further and said, huh, these people were incredibly precise with almost everything. That's weird that Mm -hmm. they would leave a whole lot of impurities in there. So then they analyzed it, and it's with the advent of some of our really incredible chemical analysis materials and technologies that I'm not going to get into because I don't understand them, that they recognized within this concrete there was the formation of different chemical structures that could only be made at very high temperatures that you would not expect to be in regular cement. And they also realized that these, the structure of these little calcium deposits was a result of this high temperature as well. So what they figured out that was happening is that the Romans weren't only using lime, but they were using quicklime, which is calcium oxide, which is significantly more reactive than calcium hydroxide, which then, as part of this mixture of the ash and the silicates and such, would beat up the reaction and cause higher temperatures and a higher curing temperature. And it would form these little crystals. Now, these crystals are really important because of their structure. When little cracks appear in cement, which in Roman cement, little cracks do appear, water starts to seep in. But because those crystals still have the highly reactive calcium forms in them, the water then reacts with that calcium, causing it to create some essentially calcium carbonate and fill in that crack and self-heal which then strengthens the concrete and keeps its structural integrity. Wow. Very cool. That's so cool. And so things like seawater, sometimes they'll say it like reinforces it, but the natural cracks and things that would happen from stress and strain or erosion automatically get filled in with a hard, durable material. 
And do you know what is made of calcium carbonate? Oyster shells, which last mm. very well in seawater. Mm-hmm. Right? I need that. So it's actually really incredible. Now, whether the Romans knew that this would happen or not, I, I don't know if they had that kind of forethought that it would happen. But they certainly knew that it created a very structurally sound concrete. And they, over time, they certainly learned that when they mixed it in this method, they didn't lose structural integrity and their buildings still stood, Mm -hmm. which would encourage them to keep doing that. We know that people have always been as smart as people are now. And people have always been as curious as they are now. So as you were saying, I mean... If they didn't know that they would have figured it out. Yeah. Yeah. And think about how many fewer distractions in life people had back then that they could actually focus (laughs) on learning this stuff instead of looking at their stupid phones all the time like myself. (laughs) They just didn't have the ability to look back at all of the previously gained knowledge on our phones. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So they had to figure this all out from start back. The incredible thing to me about this mystery has always been how many centuries it took us to figure out how to make the same thing that they figured out in the Roman times. So why do you think that is, Ashlyn? I don't, this is like one of those things that I would periodically Google to figure out if they had figured it out. So I was really excited when they did figure it out, but I don't know why it took so long. Just people assuming that they knew better because they were new fans, I don't know. Anybody else have... Any thoughts? I, I, I don't know that I have an answer to the question as it was asked, but I, I do feel like both as individuals and as societies, we are very inclined to status quo bias, I guess, <laughs> or doing things the way they've always been done. And so this is the way we make concrete. It is cheap mm. and easy and it's just the way we do it and it's possible in my mind that the romans happened to have a good method maybe they encountered worse methods and said well this method is better but they happened upon for whatever reason a good method and they stuck with it and maybe other civilizations happened upon worse methods and stuck with it too i mean yeah but i don't know maybe is there a better explanation laura Different civilizations have been using forms of concrete since far before the Roman Empire. We can see that. This particular technology of concrete disappeared after the fall of the Roman Empire because the recipe was lost. So people just didn't know how to make this type of concrete anymore. Hmm. And as we know about Europe in the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages, they weren't so... They liked churches, but building other stuff that wasn't connected to God, not top priority. And that. So we lost the information. We just didn't know mm-hmm. how to do this kind of thing. And we couldn't, we didn't start figuring it out. It really wasn't until the very late 16th century and then the early 17th century that concrete became a thing in in Europe again. It was actually 1824 where concrete, and the concrete more or less as we know it today, was invented about 200 years ago. Reinvented. Reinvented. Yeah. But it, it was, it's a different mixture. Sure. It's a different mixture. 
So that's part of the reason why, Ashlyn, they didn't know for so long because the recipe was lost for a really long time. Yeah, like I know the recipe and the method was lost. I guess I, w- I thought you were asking like, okay. did I know why the scientists couldn't figure it out? <laughs> no, 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 sorry. I like the rest. To me, it was interesting that the recipe itself was lost. But even still, when concrete was discovered again, it's be- it's made very differently than it mm-hmm. was back yeah. then. For, they have for been trying to reasons. figure out why, like, this formula was so much better yeah. for quite some time, yeah. Yeah, so it seems like it's the advance of technology to help us understand what's inside of these different things and to understand mm-hmm. these different molecules and, and really parse it out, that the nanoparticular structure of things that we couldn't have done a long time ago. Totally. So building these, When they were building these structures, they weren't building them to survive for 2,000 years. Like, who knows what went away that we don't know about? Who sure. Who knows what, what didn't work back then? <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, there was definitely trial and error. And the stuff that we see today is the stuff that lasted, right? And they, yeah. they learn different things. So the, the newer method of concrete, which is called Portland concrete, is or con- Portland cement, which is used for concrete, is the method that we use today it's still around but it's far less durable and it requires reinforcing and crumbles with water exposure as opposed to becomes strengthened and all of that so it's really not as useful but it's a heck of a lot cheaper to deal with mm-hmm. which in our society of if there's money to be made why would we not keep making money right what is the yeah. environmental footprint like comparatively because i know that that is a major issue with concrete for sure. I don't, I'm not sure exactly from the initial curing. There's, from what I read, some of it said because it cures a little bit faster, it might, that might have a bit of an issue, or because of the temperature of curing, it might be a little bit less emissions. But when you think about how long it yeah. lasts, yeah. Mm-hmm. think about how many times you have to rebuild a bridge or a seawall or something like that Absolutely. compared to one of these that was built once and or still stands <laughs> or a road. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. So if we built it with this type of a self healing, very strong type of concrete, we would save so much more emissions down the road because of it. Down the would road. Would be a heck of a lot of Easter shelves. Oyster yeah. shells? Oyster shells. That would be heck of a lot of oyster shells. Wow, it's late. It, it is late, sorry. So that's really cool. After this discovery last year, and even before it, different companies have been, different companies and researchers have been trying to find different ways of self-healing concrete. And so now with this bit of extra information, it gives them more to go off of, another angle. Interestingly, they, so they are trying the calcium method to see if it's marketable. Also, apparently there's research into using bacteria to self-heal concrete, which is what? wild, but really interesting to me. Cool. So, yeah, why not? But we have great evidence that this stuff works incredibly well. And while there are logistics, a fair number of them seem to be related more to capitalist greed than actual logistics issues. Oh. <laughs> and that's my segment. Awesome. Nice. I had never heard of this with the oyster shells, so 
that's really <laughs> neat. And I'm going to go down a wiki hole tomorrow about it. <laughs> <laughs> From one, let's say, vacation destination mystery to another, Ashlyn, would you like to tell us about the Bermuda Triangle? I would love to. As I mentioned earlier, and I feel like I've probably talked about on the podcast before, I went through quite a phase as a kid of really enjoying conspiracy theories and sort of the whole ancient aliens, who built the pyramids, let's talk about Atlantis, every documentary, every like garbage documentary that was on the History Channel or Discovery or whatever, I was all there for it. So I consumed a lot of information about the Marina Triangle is what I'm saying. I always uh, thought it would be take more of a, an impact in my life than it does. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so, kind of like quicksand as you were growing yeah. up, right? Yeah, that was a fixture yep. of our childhood. Not as much oh, of a worry as it was led to be. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Because if you watch cartoons, quicksand is like the third biggest thing you have to worry about in adult life. The Bermuda Triangle documentaries were always full of stories of planes and boats going missing, mostly in good weather. Nothing was amiss, and then they were just suddenly gone. That was the the overall impression that I got from all of the information that I took in when I was very credible. The Bermuda Triangle itself is huge. It is 500,000 square miles. It stretches from the tip of Florida to Bermuda to Puerto Rico, depending on who you ask and when, which is just a huge amount of space with tons and tons of shipping lines going through it. And it has been plagued by stories of bad things happening ever since an article in the Argosy. The Argosy? The sort of the original article on the Bermuda Triangle was published in there. That was way back, sort of towards the end of World War II. Most of the Bermuda Triangle incidents happen between, I would say, World War II and 1965 or so. There are sort of reports of some stuff from the 1800s where boats went down in that area, but they were all, of course, like attributed later. Like they, the people who wrote the original articles found all this information and just added it onto their story. In addition to crafts and ships that went down in the actual defined area, no matter what that is, it wiggles around from Chesapeake Bay to Florida is considered part of the Bermuda Triangle sometimes, which is mm -hmm. ridiculous. But Boats that went down nowhere near this geographical area sometimes get included, including one that went down off the coast off the coast of Portugal, became sort of a, associated with the Bermuda Triangle for reasons of well, it was a big ship that mystery, so it must be associated with this somehow. Now we're getting um, into the Bermuda Pentagon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, at some point, the Bermuda Triangle just becomes the whole ocean. And that is sort of the crux of the issue. When you boil it down, the area within the Bermuda Triangle does not have any statistical increase in incidence relative to any other gigantic area of ocean with that many shipping lanes going through it. 
So unfortunately, is... the answer to the Bermuda Triangle is statistics. Statistically, nothing is happening <laughs> there. <laughs> the I, I ocean think... is very big and deep. The S. I think that is my favorite skeptical lesson of all, and one of the most important ones. Never waste your time trying to explain why something is happening until you've determined that something is happening. Exactly. <laughs> the The list of incidents that happened in the Bermuda Triangle includes some that do seem shocking or extremely improbable in if you take each of them individually. For example, there is Flight 19, which was five military pilots who went down in fighter jets and just sort of, according to all of the sources at the time, sort of blinked out of existence. And there's no no explanation was offered as to why something would have gone wrong. But again, it's a big piece of land. It is an area of ocean where big storms come up frequently without warning. It was 1945 and occasionally weird things that are very improbable happen. And if you're talking about a 500,000 mile, like square mile piece of land, weird things with that are very improbable are going to happen there occasionally. And if you, if you amalgamate enough stories from a big enough area, you can make anything seem weird. Yep. Sample size. Mm-hmm. There have been some fun explanations in addition to supernatural issues. Maybe it has a strange effect on compasses and stuff. Nothing found modernly to support that. Human (laughs) error, probably a huge (laughs) contributor to these things, much more than the fact that compasses do, they aren't totally accurate and they aren't totally the same especially if you're crossing an area as large as, for example, Bermuda to Florida, the heading that you need to go to for like magnetic north versus actual north is going to change over that long a distance of of ocean. My Mm -hmm. favorite explanation is the methane. Has anybody heard about the methane and the Bermuda Triangle? No. I think so. Whale Uh, farts? So the theory is that there are huge pockets of methane trapped under the the ocean floor, and occasionally they get let loose and they bubble up, and the resulting loss of buoyancy in the water can just sort of suck a ship down in seconds because it just kind of falls into a hole in the ocean. Oh, I, I um, had heard that, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think, I feel like maybe they tested on Mythbusters even. They have done scale models also to show that it is possible to to create a loss of buoyancy like that, but there is no evidence to support any large release of gas anywhere in the Bermuda Triangle for the past 15,000 years. Wow. So, uh, yeah. I also was very entertained by the Wikipedia list of Bermuda Triangle incidents. Essentially, there are incidents from, like, again, World War II or the 1800s for the ship ones, right up until, like, 1965. And then there's a few incidents in the 2000s that were, like, way less interesting than the other. Like, a lot of the original (laughs) Bermuda stories were, like, they disappeared without a trace. Nothing was ever found. And now most of the incidents have little footnotes of this was found in 2020. This was found in whatever. And then the 
2,000 yeah. incidents are all, here's what the probable explanation was, and they found the wreckage, and yada yada. Like, it's just, it's gotten so much less interesting. <laughs> yeah. What What is the, the quote? That technology is magic if if you don't have the, the tools to detect it or something? Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> so now we have the technology to detect, so it's no longer magic. Yeah. <laughs> one of the guys who has been promoting heavily the, I guess, theory, the, what word am I looking for? Has been promoting the idea that the Bermuda Triangle is not really a thing. I really liked this line in the article. Australian scientist says probabilities are the leading cause of the Bermuda Triangle disappearances. <laughs> <laughs> and he's been beating this drum for quite a few years now, and I guess he just sort of resurfaces every few years when people go, the Bermuda Triangle has been solved? Question mark. So yeah, that is the explanation. Enjoyed looking into that. Mm-hmm. That's great. Thanks. Very cool. Okay, so we're we're three for three on the explanation not being yetis. Shit. Yeah. The next one's got to be yetis. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> probability tells us. <laughs> well, Jim. You have the most metal title of any segment I think we've ever done on this show. Please tell me that it is Yetis that cause blood rain and meat showers. Oh. On the 25th of July, 2001, rain began to fall on Kerala, a state in the, on the southwest coast of India. The rain fell for days and days, flooding much of Kottayam and Iduki districts. Now, it's not particularly strange to see rain in India in July, even rain in this volume. What made this particular rain remarkable was its color. It was blood red. Let that blood rain from the sky! It stained people's clothing. It ran red in the streets. According to archived articles from the Times of India, the phenomenon was preceded by a loud thunderclap and a flash of light in the sky, and people reported trees spontaneously shedding their leaves, which lay gray and burnt upon the ground as the rain fell. The rains continued off and on for weeks, then months, until September. They were sometimes yellow, sometimes green, sometimes black, but most often they were red. Streets and homes were flooded with water the color of blood. Photographs from the incident, which you can see online, are reminiscent of a Cecil B. DeMille film. A review of historical reports actually shows previous incidents of blood rain documented in Kerala in 1896, and in 1957, and the phenomenon occurred again in 2012. Have you all seen pictures of this? I, have. I haven't, no. Yeah. Sounds awful. I'll send a picture in the, in the chat here so you can see it. See this, Laura? It's so red. Wow. Hardcore. That's like a lot of pigment, whatever it is. 
In fact, there isn't just historical precedent in Kerala. There are stories of blood rain throughout history, throughout the world. On just, yeah, just a little slice of European history here, the earliest known reference to blood rain occurs in Homer's Iliad, in which Zeus calls down a rain of blood as a sign of grief over the impending death of his son, one of his sons, Sarpedon. Quote, He shed a rain of blood upon the earth in honor of his son, whom Patroclus was about to kill on the fertile plain of Troy, far from his home. In 582 CE, Gallo-Roman historian Gregory of Tours recorded that, quote, In the territory of Paris, there rained real blood from the clouds, falling upon the garments of many men, who were so stained and spotted that they stripped themselves of their own clothing in horror. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle recorded, quote, there was a bloody rain in Britain, and milk and butter were turned to blood, and Lothier, king of Kent, died, which would place this occurrence sometime around 685 CE. Similarly, the Chronicum Scotorum, a collection of reports from medieval Ireland, claims that in 878, quote, it rained a shower of blood, which was found in lumps of gore and blood on all the plains in Chinocta, attributing the phenomenon to the power of the Druids. William of Nubau... Lumps of gore seems really extra. <laughs> William of Nuber, a contemporary chronicler of the life of King Richard the Lionheart, wrote that in May of 1198, when King Richard was working amongst his men to complete the construction of Chateau Gaillard in Normandy, he and his laborers were all drenched in a rain of blood. William of Neuber reports that while the king's advisors considered this an ill omen, an opinion that was lent weight by the fact that his, this new fortification contravened a treaty that he had signed with Philip II of France just a few years earlier, William goes on to write, quote, The king was not moved by this to slacken one whit the pace of work, in which he took such keen pleasure that, unless I am mistaken, even if an angel had descended from heaven to urge his abandonment, he would have been roundly cursed. So, one more, one more historical instance of blood rain in, in Europe. So the final example that I'll cite comes from Book 2 of Historia Regum Britanniae, the History of the Kings of Britain, which includes the following passage, quote, at last, Cunadagius dying was succeeded by his son Rivalo, a fortunate youth who diligently applied himself in the affairs of the government. In his time, it rained blood three days together, and there fell vast swarms of flies, followed by a great mortality among the people. Historia Regum Britanniae should not be taken as a reliable document, of course. Geoffrey no. of Monmouth, the, the author, <laughs> was known to take shall we say, some liberties with history. And books 8 through 10 of Historia are largely concerned with Merlin and King Arthur. <laughs> Though the no, document think, yeah. is also noteworthy for being for containing the earliest known reference to the story of King Lear, who apparently was the great-grandfather of Rivalo, this fortunate youth whose kingdom was troubled by blood rains and swarms uh -huh. of flies. Mm-hmm believe that. So at this point in my research, I heard Laura calling my name from the other room, and I suddenly realized that I had just been reading like ancient <laughs> European history for what seemed like an age. So I bookmarked yeah, the history the of the kings of Britain. You can't stop thinking <laughs> well, about 
once you hit 40, you either have to choose the Middle Ages or World War II, Jim. Yeah, I was watching this thing about Rommel on the History Channel. He was kind of, oh my God, I'm 59! Choose your path <laughs> okay, wisely. Middle Ages all the way. Okay. <laughs> I've got a few months left to make so the choice. But... Back to 2012 Kerala. <laughs> Uh, 2001 Kerala, oh, 2012, sorry. the 2012 rain comes later. But oh. anyway, uh, as I said, though this 12th century chronicle of British kings was taken as a general, genuine historical account until like at least the 1500s, it has been widely discredited. <laughs> I really like Wikipedia's description of it. The Wikipedia editors say that it has no historical value. Quote, when events described, such as Julius Caesar's invasions of Britain, can be corroborated from contemporary histories, Jeffrey's, that's Jeffrey of Monmouth, Jeffrey's account can be seen to be wildly inaccurate. <laughs> Reading that, I couldn't help but think of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Although it has many omissions, contains much that is apocryphal, or at least wildly inaccurate. Okay, so... There's no reason to believe that any particular historical account of Blood Rain actually happened as described. Though there certainly are a lot of them, and they're fun to read about. I've described only a handful. But we know that the event in Kerala happened. We have photographic evidence for what little that's worth these days. So, what caused it? <laughs> well, there have been multiple possible explanations of Blood Rains suggested over the years. The earliest explanation from Homer and his contemporaries is, of course, the supernatural one, that this is a literal rain of blood brought on by the wrath of the gods. The second explanation, closely related to the first, and suggested by many early classical commentators, and e e even going into the Middle Ages, like the 12th century bishop Euthasius of Thessalonica, is that, yes, it was actually a rain of blood, Sure, it was blood, but, but it was still a natural event. There's like a big battle, there's loads of blood everywhere, it got washed into the waterways, then it evaporated, and then the blood rained down again. Blood goes up, blood comes down. <laughs> uh, the, only, <laughs> the only problem is that like that's not how evaporation and distillation work. Like the, <laughs> the blood parts of the blood don't actually evaporate into the sky. That would be um, horrifying no. if what went up came down. <laughs> yeah. You do get water spout ph phenomena, right? Like, we've talked about those on the, sh on the show before, like, where you get the raining of frogs and like that. I actually thought that that's where this was kind of probably going, but that seems, like, less likely now. So a third suggestion, and the prevailing hypothesis for quite some time, was that these red rains were caused by iron oxide or rust in the water, or by contamination of the rain water by reddish dust from the Sahara Desert, or the Arabian Peninsula, or just dried nearby swampland. There were some, like, Renaissance experiments to sort of confirm these, and they found that, yeah, you can get, like, reddish water by mixing reddish dust into the water. <laughs> Science! It's called the Penzik Theory. So, coming back to this specific account of blood rain, the Center for Earth Science Studies was one of the first bodies to investigate the Kerala blood rain back in 2001. And they had another hypothesis. Shortly after the event, the event began, so while the rain was still going on, they claimed that the red rain was likely the result of an air burst, an explosion of a meteorite in the atmosphere, which released approximately a thousand kilos, about a ton, or exactly a ton, a metric ton, depending on which ton you're using, yeah, meteoric I mean, dust in the atmosphere. I don't think I made my sigh audible enough. Okay, that is so, a very cool so explanation, the, though. 
CSS th- thinks that it's an airburst, like a meteorite explodes in the in the atmosphere, releases a whole bunch of like dust, basically, thus explaining the explosive sound and flash that was seen in the sky preceding the rain. A few days after endorsing the meteorite hypothesis, though, the Center for Earth Sciences Studies retracted their earlier statement. The rains were continuing, and you wouldn't typically see the dust sort of stay in the atmosphere from like like maybe from an impact event you get a bunch of dust thrown up into the atmosphere but an airburst is sort of a one and done and this rain kept going on in addition they had done some pretty basic light microscopy which revealed that the water from Kerala contained not meteoric dust particles but particles that resembled fungal spores yep but why not both? Two years after the event, Godfrey Louis and A. Santosh Kumar, physicists at the Mahatma Gandhi University in Kerala, posted an article on the archive.org preprint server titled Cometary Panspermia Explains the Red Rain of Kerala, explaining, quote, Considering its correlation with a meteor airburst event, this phenomenon raised an extraordinary question whether the cells are extraterrestrial. Here we show how the observed features of the red rain phenomenon can be explained by considering the fragmentation and atmospheric disintegration of a fragile cometary body that presumably contains a dense collection of red cells. Slow settling of the cells in the stratosphere explains the continuation of the phenomenon for two months. The red cells under study appear to be the resting spores of an extremophilic microorganism. Possible presence of these cells in the interstellar clouds is speculated from its similarity in UV absorption with the 217.5 nanometer UV extinction feature of interstellar clouds. This sounds completely bonkers. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So, crucial to the extraterrestrial hypothesis... From, from these gentlemen was the claim that these spores that were isolated by light microscopy contained no DNA, which obviously all living organisms in that we know of on Earth contain DNA. So Louis, one of the authors, went on to claim that while they had no DNA, they, these cells were still able to reproduce after being autoclaved for hours. What? It, it later became clear that Louis, a physicist, not a biologist, had, <laughs> had not been able to detect the DNA from these spores because he used the wrong kind of stain. Oh, so the stain was designed for bacteria and not fungal spores. Bacterial spores don't have a thick cell wall, or most bacterial spores, I think, maybe some of them do. But fungi do have this thick cell wall that prevents staining from most types of stain. So, what actually happened? Well, these are, in fact, spores. They are fungal spores. And I've got a picture right here that I will once again post. This is a very visual episode that our listeners will not be able to appreciate. But this is a picture of a common lichen on a tree in India. Oh. And notice the color. Mm -hmm. I see. A joint report... Yeah, a joint Home report Depot issued. <laughs> a joint report issued by the Center for Earth Science Studies (CESS), the Government of India's Department of Science and Technology, and the Tropical Botanical Garden and Research Institute said, "Quote: 
The color was found to be due to the presence of a large amount of spores of a lichen-forming alga belonging to the genus Trentipolia. Field verification showed that the region had plenty of such lichens. Samples of lichen taken from Chaganacheri area when cultured in an algal growth medium also showed the presence of the same species of algae. Both samples, from rainwater and from trees, produced the same kind of algae, indicating that the spores seen in rainwater most probably came from local sources. A subsequent visit to the site of the rains in August revealed that nearly every porous surface was now covered in Trentopolia lichens. So it is not clear how all of the lichen spores got into the clouds. It's possibly like a water spout phenomenon, as with the, as with the rain, rain of frogs that we've talked about in the past. But they were, this, these spores are quite small and were hugely dispersed in the atmosphere generally. And they, they bloomed during the rainfall. Or they, 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 there appeared to be an algal bloom during the rainfall. So when I told the story to Kira, our almost 11-year-old, today, he said, whoa, creepy, when I told her about the, <laughs> the blood rain. And she seemed a little disappointed when I explained the spores. She thought it was cool, but she's, I, think, I feel like she was looking for like a more creepy explanation. But then she said, wait, what was that huge bang in the sky then? Mm-hmm. <laughs> So if it wasn't a meteor was exploding, what was it? <laughs> so it's funny because I actually wondered the same thing myself. Like, it's possible that there was an airburst meteor. I'm not sure. But you know what else is possible? It was a thunderstorm. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Some I such all ready to come up with a cooler explanation. Like, <laughs> I know sometimes trees explode in the winter in Canada because they get too cold, but that doesn't make a ton of sense in India. Like, what got the tree spores into the... I don't know. Yeah. Thunderstorm. Cool. Wait, wait, when you're <laughs> when you're really settled on these weird explanations, sometimes you forget the basic stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there was a bang and a flash in the sky and then a bunch of rain started. Well, however, there are some incidents like this that are a little harder to explain. So case in point, the Kentucky meat shower. <laughs> have you all heard of this? Yeah. Yes, I have. So on the 3rd of March, 1876, around 11 in the morning, Mrs. Crouch was standing on the porch of her home in Bath County, Kentucky, when she saw a large piece of meat fall from the sky, hitting the earth with a wet thud about 25 meters from her door. It was followed by another, then another. Free meat! This, This meat shower lasted for about an hour scattering what appeared to be slabs of beef over an area of about 60 square meters of Kentucky countryside. The pieces of meat were 5 to 10 centimeters on a side, and according to a contemporaneous account in Scientific American, tasted like either mutton or venison. Oh, Wait, no. I thought they were beef. Well, they looked like beef, but they didn't taste like beef. Many possible explanations for this meat shower have been offered over the years, including the blood rain phenomenon we've just discussed. At the time, the prevailing hypothesis was that the meat did not fall from the sky, and indeed wasn't even meat. It was Nostok, 
a gelatinous colony of cyanobacteria, also known as star jelly, troll's butter, and fallen star. These bacterial colonies are often missed when they're dry, but in wet weather they expand, foaming up from the ground, and thus can appear to be like raining down from the sky, because you see the rain falling and then they puddle on the ground. It would not taste like mutton. They they were once believed to float on the breeze until it rained. Apparently, they do have like a quite an umami taste, but they certainly yeah they certainly wouldn't have a meaty texture. And unfortunately for this explanation, despite it be calling despite this being called the Kentucky Meat Rain, Mrs. Crouch claimed that it was not actually raining at the time when the meat fell, so that doesn't really follow. However, apparently, seven samples were sent to various scientists who confirmed that at least two of them were lung tissue, three seemed to be muscle tissue, and two were said to be made of cartilage. What year was this again? This was 1876. Oh, okay. So the explanation that was favored by Scientific American which was also the explanation presented by Dr. Louis D. Kastenbein contemporaneously, according to writing in the Louisville Medical News, and also the favorite explanation of locals, apparently, at the time, was that the meat rain was vulture ejecta. (laughs) That is to say, buzzard puke. Follow the buzzard! So when one vulture is sick or sometimes even is just startled, it will vomit up what it has recently eaten. And apparently, other vultures in the area will follow suit under the presumption that they've all been feeding on the same meat, and thus if it was contaminated, they'll all throw it up kind of at the same time as a protective mechanism. Like some kind of horrifying Family Guy episode. So, so that is apparently the current still prevailing hypothesis for the meat rain. A bunch of buzzards were flying over the area and all threw up. That's nasty. I expected That's horrifying. I expected that someone was experimenting with wildlife and explosives. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, That's I, I where feel I like uh, you were going. I feel that. like there was there was a meat rain in one of the first season episodes of Lost, right? Don't bring up Whoa, that. Those bad memories. <laughs> I think there was in the X Files. Definitely, there was meat rain. So that's the end of the blood and meat rain. One of the most pedantic things I've ever done on this podcast, which is saying a lot, is look up vultures versus buzzards when you interchange <laughs> them there, and they are different, apparently. But yeah. vultures are often called buzzards incorrectly. It's a buffalo bison also... situation, hey? Yeah. <laughs> buzzards, vultures, and condors, they're all closely related, but not the same. Well, I appreciate the pedantic correction, Ashlyn. <laughs> Don't we move on to something? Well, let's move on to something not so nice before we move on to something nice. Can I just say, I know we should talk about it, but I would rather just not exist in this world right now. It's it's extremely. They want us not to. I know. It's giving in. So I'll set the stage here, I guess, since it's related to my segment from last episode. So the province of Alberta 
I don't want to throw all Albertans under the bus. There are, are many of them, including two of the people who started this podcast with us many years ago, currently reside in Alberta. Alberta is currently led by Premier Danielle Smith of the right-wing United Conservative Party. Smith, for those unfamiliar with her, is cozy with Tucker Carlson, who recently visited Alberta. Barf. And Russia. Uh, yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. So Smith recently announced sweeping changes to the law in Alberta, the provincial law. Alberta, for those not Canadian, are is just a province, two, two provinces away from us. It's on the other side of the prairies. Alberta is our Texas. All you yeah, need Alberta is... is Widely seen as the Texas of the North, it is the province that exports all of the oil via the various pipelines, etc. So Smith recently announced uh, changes to the law uh, pertaining to trans youth in the province. So the changes affect both medical and social transition. So first, changes to school. Sex education in schools will move to an opt-in basis rather than an opt-out basis. So rather than opting your kid, be, being able to opt your kids out of sex ed, you will have to opt your kids in to sex ed in the province of Alberta. So this includes uh, lessons on... <laughs> right. This includes yeah. lessons on gender identity and sexual orientation. And as Laura pointed out when we were discussing this the other day, that just means nobody is going to get sex education. Nobody opts into anything. No. It's, yep. it's extra work. And how many of us have said like, oh, I should do that, but I just, eh. Whereas if you're just automatically enrolled, you're just like, meh. And we're not even That's talking about like important things. Like when you look at organ donations, countries move specifically to opt out models because it drives up organ donation eligibility significantly. Yeah. Now, this is a different context, right? Because you're not asked to think about your own mortality. But when people have to opt in, they just don't get around to it, even if they believe in that thing, where or they forget, and then this and that, right? If you have to opt out, only the people who are super motivated are going to do that. I am pretty sure that my sex ed in school was essentially opt-in. Like, we had to bring a form home that... Our parents had to fill out that was like, yes, I want you to have sex ed, or no, I don't. And if you didn't fill it in, you didn't get to go. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's pretty common in the United States. I don't recall. Was that not like, your we, experience? Like, well, I don't think we have filled out any forms. So for Kira, because Kira's like family life started last mm -hmm. year, we got information saying that we are going to be talking about this yep. and and like that these topics are coming up. And you always have the opportunity to call the school and to tell them and things like that. But it wasn't a permission form. It was nope. just an FYI. This is what we're mm. doing next week. Which is which is the way it should be, in my yeah, opinion. It's important information for people to have access to. <laughs> I have like such a core memory of my mom snatching that form out of my hand and filling it out to be like, yes, someone else is going to tell you about this and I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting for this day. <laughs> <laughs> So more, more pointedly pertinent to our topic last month, kids under 16 will not be able to socially transition at school without their parents' consent. So they will not be able to choose a different name or pronouns without their parents' consent. And kids aged 17 and 16 can change their name or pronouns without their parents' permission, if they're 16 or 17. 
but schools are still required to notify their parents that this change was made. Cool. Yeah, so it's the exact like outing to their killed. parents that we talked about. The, the, I covered some of the reasons that that's very bad on the on the bonus pod last month. No word on whether parents will be notified every time their kids get a new nickname that they ask to be called by. I, l- I look forward to the permission form when when Huxley wants to go by Hux. Mm-hmm. Um, like like Angela would be off the table, but Hugo Popcorn Pants, no problem. Yeah. So in addition, looking beyond social transition, this change also denies access to puberty blockers for those under 16. So it denies know, when access they need to, them. to puberty blockers until they're no longer relevant. It denies access to gender-affirming hormone therapy for those under 16, which is, as I mentioned, distinct from puberty blockers. Those are two separate interventions. They're complementary to each other. And it also denies access to gender-affirming surgery for those under 18. Now, this is a relatively small change. It's like an, it's an important one, and I'm not trying to minimize it, but this effectively only, is only a change for those seeking chest masculinization surgery, which was previously permitted for those 16 and older. But bottom surgery already required that the patient had reached the age of majority. And most, I believe all medical associations that I'm familiar with, recommend waiting until the age of majority for, for bottom surgery. There are a lot of complex sort of reasons you want to, the tissue to have finished growing and that, like that. That's a big one that like if you do it big enough, early yeah. enough, especially in like people assigned male at birth, like it's going to be. Yeah. It, you could end up with problems. Yeah. So exceptions for the puberty blocker and hormone therapy rules are apparently going to be made for those who have already started those treatments. They will be allowed to continue them. But these changes appear to have been made without consultation with either educators or medical professionals. I read an interview with Dr. Sam Wong, the Alberta Medical Association's head of pediatrics. He spoke to Global News, and he was quick to question the government's priorities, (laughs) saying, Mm. why are they talking about this issue when there are so many other issues going on in healthcare? Why are they picking on this patient at this particular point in time? I've seen a few good sort of mass letters signed by you know Alberta pediatricians and Alberta physicians etc yeah and uh, we'll uh, we can link to a bunch of this in the show notes including this this article dr wong also noted that denying access to puberty blockers in addition to bringing about the irreversible changes that we talked about in the show it actually may result in increased numbers of patients seeking more invasive gender affirming surgery I'll quote Dr. Wong here, quote, We use puberty blockers to stop puberty once it starts, so they are allowed to stay in a state of stasis, so puberty does not progress, and that allows them a few years to think about their decision and whether they want to move forward with more gender-affirming care, or whether they want to stop the puberty blockers and restart puberty. Puberty blocking actually has benefits for gender-divergent patients by preventing the development of mature secondary sex characteristics so that later in life, the most invasive gender-affirming surgery may not be necessary if the patient moves forward with gender-affirming care. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to need to do a lot of, or you're not going to have, for trans women, 
as much masculinizing facial surgery and tracheal shaves and in some cases torso reconstruction and reshaping there there are multiple types of surgeries rather than like other than the kind of obvious ones for the the basic sexual characteristics that we think about that that happen a lot of these are extremely invasive and it's really easy to prevent the need for them and this policy is just going to harm patients and may, as as Lauren mentioned, end up killing some. The risks compared to the benefits are so, so small, and this is so short-minded and evil. Yeah. And we've said before, but puberty blockers have been used for not only for gender-affirming care for trans patients, but for gender-affirming care for cis patients or for many other reasons like from stopping prepubescent puberty, like early puberty. Precocious puberty, are, yeah. Yeah, that's the word. And they are, they're not a new science. And presumably, yeah. Premier Smith would al- continue to allow four-year-olds with precocious puberty to take hormone blockers, puberty blockers. Mm-hmm. But if they come out as trans later, would they have to stop? Absurd. <laughs> Maddening. And like a lot of these surgeries are still permitted. This is obviously a, a touchy subject, but you're still allowed to perform a circumcision, right? Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. done without the patient's consent, right? Yeah. And as far as I've read, there's been no carve out for intersex individuals as well with this new pronouncement mm. from the Alberta government. And as yeah. I covered last month, intersex folks are so much more common than these fucking bigots would ever believe. Yeah. yeah. I have seen... Yeah. And... Go ahead, Jim. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, like, as I believe we've mentioned before, gl- happily, we're not typically doing non-consensual surgery on intersex, young intersex children anymore. Mm-hmm. But once they reach the age where they understand their bodies and the context and like and their gender identity and what they want to do presumably like anyone else we would want them to have control over their bodies and and the choice that they could make right and i'd love to give them the option of hormone blockers until they figure that out yeah yeah not everybody has it figured out by age eight or ten yeah lord of the rings hadn't even come out until i was in 11th grade Back to Gems. By the time it came out, Jim. <laughs> this is a throwback to Gems. Gem identifying as dwarf. Mm-hmm. One trying thing to lighten the seen, mood a little yeah. bit. So yeah, good. one thing I have seen lightening the mood a bit is there's been a major pushback on this from more Albertans than I thought would be possible. Me tarring them all with the conservative brush, but there mm-hmm. has been quite a bit of an outcry from these concerned parents that the premier is so so wanting to protect their rights but there's been so many saying this is bullshit and yeah yeah but we'll see yeah we'll see what happens we'll continue the fight time to start burning shit folks i am really scared about what the polling indicates is coming at the next election and how fast and far this will spread in the united states yep. you mean yeah. Nope. Here. Yeah. I. 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 Get in federally. Yeah. For for months, I've been saying to Laura, like, like, 
there, there's no there's no chance that Biden wins the American election. Mm. <laughs> no, there's no chance that Trudeau wins it here. Yeah, I, whoever I, yeah. is running the no. NDP federally at the at election time. Yeah, unfortunately not. I mean, I'm I'm no Trudeau fan, but just as I'm no Biden fan, but I certainly don't want the Republicans or the Conservatives in. Yeah. Hmm. I have to keep strengthening these communities, but I know that there are so many people out there that don't have the privileges that we have. Yeah. Very much. I really don't know how to transition this into something nice. That's what the music is for, Lauren. Uh, Let's just end on an up note then. got something nice i have a couple i have some things nice just quickly i watched a new movie on netflix i want to say is it on netflix which one nimona with the kids i think it's on netflix i believe Um, so it is lovely i think it's based on a comic that i haven't read i believe the comic creator is trans it is just a lovely fun movie it is the kind of movie that parents and kids and adults and people of all ages can watch and enjoy it is very funny and fun it has a great message it also has some just queer characters for quote no reason in it like (laughs) there's relationship normalization which is great and it's it has a lovely message and it's just like, I just, I grinned through it, the whole thing. It was just a delight. So I highly recommend it. Nimona, it looks great. Very funny. And the, the kids loved it too. And then I also, I've been playing a new video game. It's called Dredge. It's sort of a, you're a fisherman and like, like dredging the depths in a small island community. And it's super creepy and fun. Really delightful. Came out last year. Didn't have a chance to play it until now. And yeah, I would give it a give it a recommendation. Very cool. cool. A thumb up. I have a video game, something nice, except I can't remember if I talked about it last month. I just want to talk about playing Super Mario Wonder with Dave, but I don't remember if I said that. I don't I think so. you I did. I don't think you so. No, because I, so I would have echoed that. that. That's great. Yeah, I think, Jam, you've talked about Super Mario Wonder as a something nice before, but we got it for Christmas. And Dave and I have played all of it now, I think, except for we are currently on the final, final battle badge challenge. And we have so far spent something like three or four hundred lives learning how to do it. It is frustrating, but also fun. Yep. I, I, making that's me a better one, platformer. <laughs> yeah. That's the one level that I still have not beat. I haven't gone back to it. I, I gave it a run on my last day in Churchill and we think <laughs> didn't close. finish it. <laughs> We we can get through eight or nine sections now. Yeah, it's taken us a lot nice. of uh, farming for lives. And it's just been a really fun activity with Dave. And also, today I fed 15 people custom quesadillas, and I'm pretty proud of that. Cool. They're pretty wicked. All right. Laura, do you have anything? Have something nice? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's been going on since the last time we chatted? Ah. <sighs> Gosh, what's something nice? Yeah, it was okay. My something nice, I guess, has been having Jim around more. It's been, he's been 
more flexible in his schedule, and it's just been nice to come home to another human and that. (laughs) Very nice. I'll use host prerogative to go last. My something nice is next month for our March show, it will be our 200th episode. So Goodness. Yeah. Hard Join to believe. Us then, folks. How long have we been we've been doing this? Well, you guys have been doing this for over a decade. I joined. Yeah, we started, we started in show, 2010. Yeah, my first show was when we were still living on Maryland, so it was over a decade now because we've been in this house for it'll be nine years. So, yeah, we'll make it something special. So tune in next yep. month. <laughs> All right, and we will talk to you then. Thank you, everybody, okay. for being buzzkills with me and. Yet again, proving that we haven't had anything that's been proven to be a Yeti. And the Yeti! <laughs> Always we'll a pleasure trying. to be a buzzkill, Lauren. You know that. <laughs> yeah. And we'll have to actually start our the Eleanor of Aquitaine podcast. I've done so much research. <laughs> 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 All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Show notes and references for all of our episodes are available at lueepodcast.com, where you can also find links to donate or get in touch. If you'd like to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you found us, or by sharing this episode with a friend. Life. Don't talk to me about life. Maybe Richard should have listened. (laughs) Maybe if he had, maybe if Richard had listened, Pierre Bazile's hand might have slipped and the lion wouldn't have fallen to an ant. That's a little joke for all the Richard the First heads out there. Thank you. All three of you. (laughs) Appreciate it. Okay, so uh, Marissa, you can put this in the outtakes or something, I guess, but... uh, the context here is that in March of 1199, uh, Richard the Lionheart laid siege to a small castle in France um, called uh, Chalou-Chabrol. It was basically unarmed. It was like this tiny little castle. Uh, I don't remember why uh, he uh, was laying siege to this castle. But anyway, if, uh, after a few days, Richard, uh, during the siege, was hit in the shoulder by a crossbow bolt and uh, got gangrene. And he, as he lay dying, um, he called to his men to have the scoundrel who had shot him from the battlements of the castle uh, to be brought before him. And uh, this person, uh, who turned out to be a, a small boy, uh, usually called uh, Peter or Pierre uh, Basile, uh, but there are a bunch of other names that are given, he uh, said that he shot at Richard because Richard had killed his dad and his brothers, um, and that he wanted to kill Richard in revenge. And, you know, Richard, being Richard, you know, gave a hearty laugh and said, live on, and by my bounty behold the light of day. Um, and he ordered that his men uh, let the kid go uh, with like a uh, hundred shillings. Uh, so that's a nice uh, story. And then, of course, How much chroniclers. Was shillings back then, though. Uh, oh, plenty, I, I imagine. <laughs> and then chroniclers, like said, you know, for years that uh, the the lion by the ant was slain because Richard uh, then succumbed to his gangrene. Sorry, Laura, you were yeah. sighing. Oh, just humanity <laughs> continues to learn nothing from itself. Speaking of which, uh, according to at least one historian, uh, right after Richard died, Pierre was captured by uh, mercenaries and uh, flayed alive. 
though. Thanks, Jim. Why couldn't you leave it at the happy part? <laughs> Come on. Well, anyway, Richard was Richard was also uh, doing the siege because they uh, had found Roman coins nearby. Oh yeah, yeah. Them. Remember there was a yeah, rumor. He, I, I I don't know if that was confirmed, yeah. but yeah, there's a rumor that yeah. there was like a big uh, big amount of Roman coinage there. Um, and he was suppressing a revolt by a viscount. Yeah. Uh, Richard is interesting. Like extremely, extremely like anti-Semitic, even by the day's standards. Also, didn't mm-hmm. speak a word of English. Stop. No. Okay. Okay. Fine. Fine. Let's get back to it. <laughs> I'll have you as uh, okay. a guest on my Eleanor of Aquitaine podcast, and we can talk about it. <laughs> Please save it. Save your pod for another time. Okay. I really liked Baudolino by Jesus Umberto Eco. <laughs> 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 